wouldn't it be interesting if we could create intergenerational collaboration villages? In the United States, we have real estate developers who built multifamily housing, but they don't build multi-generational housing. And I think we'll see more of that. Welcome to the On Wisdom podcast with Igor Grossman and Charles Cassidy. Over the next hour, we'll be dissecting the latest research from the emerging field of wisdom science. We will discuss what it means for each of us and for society in terms of reasoning and living more wisely in the 21st century. Thank you, listeners, for sticking with us. We are getting close to the high 20s. Some people thought we'd never make it this far, but we proved them wrong. Here we are. And a very exciting episode indeed. I think this is the first time we have stepped outside the ivory tower of academia into the there's a whole world out there and in that world we are very excited to share with you today our guest chip conley so chip conley is a hospitality entrepreneur author head of global hospitality and strategy at airbnb founder of the modern elder academy in baja california sur he's written numerous books including wisdom at work the making of a modern elder he has delivered ted talks on the importance of measuring what matters in life and been a mentor to both the governor of california and the ceo of the burning man projects quite broad. More recently, he has become interested in developing wisdom schools that can help people navigate midlife. Chip, how did I do? Did I did I even touch it? Some of the things you do? <laughs> well, I, I, I now I know I'm so tired. <laughs> yeah, that explains it. Yeah, I, I'm tired just after describing it. Thank you. I, I'm really honored to be with you. And I do I do on occasion love to hang out in ivory towers as well. So uh, uh-huh. uh, I appreciate the conversation we're going to have. I saw Wonderful. one of your books from the past had Maslow in the title. So you've, you obviously have an interest in psychology or have had for some time. Yes. Um, my last two books prior to Wisdom at Work, uh, one was called Peak, How Great Companies Get Their Mojo from Maslow. Uh-huh. Uh, and that one really took Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the iconic psychology theory, and right. applied it to employees, customers, and investors. And then the book after that was called Emotional Equations, which was really taking Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, <clears throat> and turning it into an equation that almost is like a mathematical mantra to understand despair and meaning. Uh, um, and then 17 other equations in the book. So, so you're a sort of a, a secret psychologist at heart, really, by the sounds of it. <laughs> yes, I'm a closet psychologist. A closet psychologist. Yeah, fair enough. Well, let's get started with a very simple question to both of you guys. Uh, this question is, what fraction of your adult life, assuming that you're adults, uh, still <laughs> lies ahead of you? Uh, Chip, uh, first you, what do you think? How much still lies yeah. ahead of you? Well, you know, it's a great question. It was a <clears throat> a question that my father and I actually considered a couple of years ago when we were on a scuba diving trip. And I went on to an, uh, an online longevity site that said I was going to live till age 98. Bloody uh, hell. Wow. That's and if, that, if, that, if that's true, and I was at that time 57, I'm now 59. But if I'm 59 today, let's say, let's use today, mm-hmm. I am barely into the second half of my adult life if we start counting at age 18. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting because it means that uh, that I can take up you know, learning to learning Spanish or learning to surf in my late fifties and feel like, wow, it's worth doing because I have a lot of life ahead of me. Right. Which is a kind of a a new way of thinking about it because people in the past, you know, you'd have been retiring in like a few years. Yeah. I think, I think it's, it's sort of, it it helps to create the sandbox that's bigger for you. Um, Meaning you have lots, lots more choices of things you can do. What happens for so many people in midlife is their life starts to narrow, and they only focus on the things that right. they can do well. But there's so many responsibilities that you feel like you have to uh, accomplish, uh, so many things that are driving you and pulling you in different directions. Yeah, I, that is one of the challenges of midlife. You know, midlife is a relatively new phenomenon in the history of humankind. Uh, just like retirement and adolescence, it's a 20th century phenomenon. Mm. And, and we've called it midlife crisis for 55 years now without doing much to change yeah. to change, change the narrative. And in fact, I think it's important to change the narrative because as has been shown in many social science studies, there's a new curve of happiness, and people tend to hit their bottom around 45 to 50, and and then they get happier in their 50s or their 60s or even in their 70s than they were the prior decade. That's not the common story people think about old age. Yes, the the personal narrative and the societal narrative are at odds based mm. upon mm. what research has shown. Mm. 
Yeah, and so we'll return to the midlife in just a second. But before that, uh, Charles, I will not let you off the hook. <laughs> what about you? Well, actually, uh, how I, much do you think lays ahead of you? Okay, I just did the maths. The the equation looks like on the top of the fraction, you've got life expectancy subtract age divided by life life expectancy subtract eighteen. For any listeners who want to do this at home, that's how that works. That gives me with forty one over sixty six, which is uh, a little bit less than two thirds left, which is pretty inspiring i've got because i kind of feel like i'm getting on a bit um i'm 43 so but yeah wow i've only you know all the errors i've made i've still got i've got twice as much ahead of me to correct that mess um so yeah that's that's a nice way of looking at it what about you Igor? i i don't know it depends on the day when i wake up and it feels if the day is gloomy and everything is feels horrible then i probably think oh just 10 more years so five more years are <laughs> oh, you gonna retire uh, but you know what's uh, that's right. But, you know, sometimes maybe that's what academics need. They need like, well, my magnum opus, I need to finish it in this one year that I have left to live. Right, right. What would I do if I have one year left to live as an academic? Well, I need to finish my magnum opus. Maybe that should be the driving force. I don't know. Uh, but uh, most of the time, I don't know. Like, uh, I don't think I am uh, even, in, I mean, I'm the youngest one among the three of us. So it's, uh, I don't <laughs> even think about those questions yet. All ah, right. Well, it's to come. You can look forward to that. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) So let's get into it. Um, I'm really interested, Chip, in in people who will have heard of you will will think of you as an entrepreneur in sort of the hotel world and kind of not sort of boring hotels like sort of uber hip hotels. And I'm really interested just in a little bit of a background of how what's happened in you moving, well, not necessarily moving from, you still work in that world, but what's what's happened that has led you to journey from becoming being focused on the sort of uber hip world of hotels uh, to the unfortunately less sexy and cool world of wisdom oh i think wisdom's very sexy <laughs> but, 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 but let's, let, let me tell you how i how i came and stumbled upon wisdom um uh, in my career please do at age 26 i started this company joie de vivre hospitality became the second largest boutique hotelier in the u.s um, and then I sold the company at the bottom of the Great Recession and really wasn't sure what was next for me because I felt a little bit beaten up by the Great Recession. Um, I was 50. And two years later, the three founders of Airbnb, um, which was at that time a small tech startup in San Francisco, they approached me and said, we like to democratize hospitality, but we don't know a thing about hospitality or the travel industry. Will you be our mentor and will you help us? And so long story short, as I, I, I said yes, and over the next seven years, I have been at their side for four for of those years full time. But what became very quickly apparent to me was at age 52, I was surrounded by people who were half my age. And they started to call me the modern elder, which initially I, I took a, took offense to. Um, but, but I realized being an elder is actually just speaks to how your age relative to who's around you, whereas being elderly may be the last five or ten years of your life. And so uh, one of the things that Brian Chesky, uh, the CEO uh, who's 21 years younger than me, said to me after about two months in the job is, Chip, we hired you for your knowledge but what you've really brought here is your wisdom. And I had never prior to that point thought of the difference between knowledge and wisdom. And mm. from that point forward, and that was, again, about seven years ago, I, I really started to research wisdom and try to understand it a little bit more. And ultimately, that led me to writing this best-selling book called Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. And and ultimately creating the, the, the Modern Elder Academy, which we, we're, we're told is the world's first midlife wisdom school, whatever that is. But I'll t- right. we'll, get, we'll get to that. But that's, yeah. that's how I got interested in wisdom is I stumbled on it because I was hired for my knowledge. But ultimately, what they appreciated was my wisdom. So we're going to get into all that. And then it's really interesting what you're doing uh, in that area. But um, I just wanted to, you know, it's rare for us to have someone so um, in the world on, on the show, uh, so to speak. And you you have this background in uh, business and then this interest in wisdom, and I'm interested in picking your brain as as to why do you why do you think wisdom isn't really perceived as aspirational or um, sort of as glamorous even as, as stuff things like power or status or wealth? Why is that the case? And more importantly, you know you're you're a person who can make things happen. How do we change this? <laughs> I love it. I love it. 
So I think, you know, we live in an, in a world where what's most obvious and superficial sometimes gets great value. So power, status, wealth, beauty, mm-hmm. money, you know, the money, th- these things are actually, people can show them off. Wisdom is not something you show off. You can show off your knowledge. You know, in fact, right. someone who's, you know, we, we know that people try to be the smartest person in the room. You know, the, anybody who's the wisest person in the room would not try to be the wisest person in the room. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it's, there's, there's a, you know, generally wisdom is often something that's social in the sense it has social good attached to it. And there's an element of humility attached to it as well. And, and therefore, um, in some ways, wisdom is, is somewhat abstract and somewhat under the, under the radar. And yet, I think what is interesting is it was 60 years ago that Peter Drucker, the famous management theorist, suggested that the world was in the future was going to be ruled by knowledge workers. Um, and and people said to him 60 years ago, "What what in the heck is a knowledge worker?" And he mm-hmm. talked about computers, and people didn't even understand what computers were 60 right, years right, ago. Right. And in fact, 60 years later, seven of the 10 most valuable companies in the world today are tech companies. So knowledge does rule the world. Mm. But all that knowledge is in your pocket. If you have your iPhone in your pocket or your Galaxy or whatever you've got, mm. you know, knowledge, we're awash in knowledge. What, what is really more and more scarce in the world is wisdom. And I think where that's starting to become more apparent is in Silicon Valley. And funny enough, my story is set in Silicon Valley. And, mm. and so mm. what I, what I think, what I think we're going to see is, um, especially in a world that is more and more reliant on machine learning <clears throat> and artificial intelligence, the scarcity of the human innovation and in- intuition and creativity and pattern recognition around emotions or emotional intelligence. I think it's going to, we're going to see an era where instead of ca- talking about knowledge workers, we're going to start talking about wisdom workers. That's an exciting prospect. Uh, another thing I was keen to pick your brain around is that you, um, you've done some really interesting mentoring. I mean, just in the intro, you've, you've mentored some pretty fascinating people. Um, and I'm kind of interested, like people listening might be aware of the value of a mentor and they might w- want to know what to look for in a mentor, maybe someone who's a little, uh, has a more experience than them. But then also, how do you become a mentor? I mean, you, you have, you've, followed that path from probably being led by people to leading people. Yeah. How, how does that work? Well, I think it works differently today than it may have in the past, but l- let me, I'll just give you a little bit of my history with it. So when I was 35, so I'm 59 now, when I was 35, I became the mentor to a guy named Gavin Newsom. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> he was my first mentee. It was, it was his sister who, t- who reached out to me and said, will you please be the mentor to my brother? He's 28 years old and the CEO of a hospitality company and doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> right. And, and so I, I helped him out. And ultimately, he became the mayor of San Francisco. And now he's the governor of California, which is wow. the, fifth, the fifth largest uh, economy in the world as a state. So... That was one experience. And then I had an experience, as you mentioned earlier, with uh, the Burning Man Project. I've been on the board of directors there, and the CEO has been a mentee of mine. But I think that what's true today, so in the past, it has been a mentor-mentee relationship where usually Mm -hmm. the mentor is older, they have the wisdom, Mm -hmm. and they are delivering the wisdom and dispensing it to their mentee. Mm -hmm. But 20 years ago, Jack Welsh, who used to run General Electric, created something called reverse mentorship. And it was how his older, how the older people in the company who tended to be senior executives could learn the internet and computers from younger people in the company. So what we've seen is a history of mentorship, which usually was old to young, and then now reverse mentorship, young to old. What's happening today that's fascinating is mentorship today is mutual mentorship. And it's the mm-hmm. mutual mentorship. My, my my relationship with Brian Chesky, the CEO of Airbnb, was one of mutual mentorship, where he taught me a whole lot about not just technology, but about um, millennial travel habits and mm-hmm. lifestyle trends. Mm-hmm. And I I taught him something about emotional intelligence and leadership and, and strategic thinking. And in, we were both better off for it. So I actually think that. In the future, intergenerational collaboration is going to lead to a world where the physics of wisdom sharing won't just happen in one direction from old to young. It'll happen in both directions. Yeah, I would like to get uh, 
right into this topic of midlife and the struggles and the prejudice that a lot of people, when they start approaching midlife and later in life, face. And um, let's start with this uh, very interesting term, the sandwich generation, uh, which I don't think a lot of people, probably not a lot of people in our audience know about it, but it's a big term in sociology that refers to a generation of people, usually in their 40s to 70s, who care for the aging parents while supporting their own children. So they're like literally driven in different directions. And according to the Pew Research Center, one of every eight Americans aged 40 to 70 is both raising a child and caring for a parent in addition to being sort of like a lot of other people who uh, have some additional responsibilities there. So I think of this as sort of very fascinating. It's a new dilemma. And as you like mentioned earlier, uh, we didn't even have this type of idea of a midlife before, potentially. It's a unique challenge. And I wonder, what is your perspective on how to overcome uh, some of the uh, challenges that this type of push and pulls uh, of the sandwich generation of the midlife bring with them? I think it, it, one of the key things to know is that we live in an era where we have a scarcity of caregivers. And I think that's going to be more and more apparent over the next 20 years. What does that mean? It basically means if, we, if, longevity, if the longevity trends continue and people are living longer, they are often needing more care. And the, the part of the sandwich generations that's new is the fact that the aging parents are living longer. So mm-hmm. I think that the fact that, that you're caring for your kids, is, is that's not a new phenomenon. But the fact that your parents don't die at age 70 or 75 and they're living till 85 or 90 or later means that they're needing more attention. So I do think that it's probably going to get more and more attention from the government. Uh, the government has been very good. It would depend on which government you're talking about, but many right. governments. Yeah, exactly. Many governments have been better and better about understanding the needs of family leave where someone has a child um, and you give space for the father or mother to uh, take time off from work. There's not a lot of attention on this as much paid to the idea of caring for your older parents and why you may need some leave then. Mm. And I think there's going to be a growing number of people who are going to look at how do you create a labor pool of people providing services to older people that will allow someone to afford that, because that's one of the challenges uh, of why people don't uh, do this. Plus, of course, you want to take care of your parents. Mm. But but it's a, it's a full-time job, especially later in life. Right. So it, there's no doubt that when people talk about the sandwich generation, often what they're talking about is a sandwich that feels very thin on the inside <laughs> because, because the two big uh, loaves of bread uh, that take the space is all of that caregiving that's, mm-hmm. that is necessary. Right. And it, 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 it's one of the, str- the number one stressors for people in midlife. Yeah, and uh, exactly. So, like, that's what I want to bring up: the, the depression, anxiety, and especially uh, a lot of the people who take the burden of being the caregiver tend to be uh, more female, disproportionately, at least in our societies. And um, yeah, so I mean, I think of this uh, is, is fascinating. On the one hand, you have this uh, burnout, depression, feeling of stress because of your responsibilities. On the other hand, you have this increasing, especially as you get over 50, uh, ageism and perception that you're old and this claims that you cannot learn anything because, you know, all dogs cannot learn new tricks. And why should I learn a new language now? Uh, I'm too old and I will die in 10 years anyways. I mean, some people are thinking like that, and I think I'd probably exacerbated by uh, this uh, increasing stress uh, by still sort of like you're still caring for others around you. So what can we do about it? Well, I, I mean, I think a couple things. Number one is there's a need to re- almost rethink senior housing. So wouldn't it be interesting if we could create intergenerational collaboration villages where, or, or just even a building? You know, in the United States, we have real estate developers who built multifamily housing. But they don't build Mm -hmm. multi-generational housing. Mm -hmm. And I think we'll see more of that. What does that mean? It means like, well, you're you're building a condo or an apartment building, and you actually have a daycare center down below, and you have a right next to the daycare center, you have a senior center. (laughs) So you actually have the people in their 80s and 90s who are living with their with their sons and daughters. 
uh, and grandchildren. In the same building that you actually have some daycare for the kids, you actually have some senior care. And in fact, you mix the two because what we've seen, you know, in so many beautiful videos over the years is seniors, older people loving being in the presence of, you know, babies and mm-hmm. children. And so, and in fact, they could even, it also gives them a sense of something to do. Mm. So um, I think we'll see more of that in the future. Right. That's really interesting. So, I mean, actually the idea of, you know, grandchildren being taken care of by grandparents is, uh, uh, it's, it's ironic because it's uh, often common uh, in not so affluent societies where it is almost a structural necessity because there is no other support system to take care of grandchildren. So the grandparents take care of them. Exactly. Uh, but I think, you know, outside, we kind of got rid of this because it's like, well, you have the resources, we can do something else, uh, but it may have some psychological benefits. The other issue here so it's like you mentioned that uh, you know the, when you have this connection between the generations and transfer of knowledge, well, what is it that that all the workers excel at? What can they bring to the table in this type of intergenerational uh, interactions? You know, what's really interesting is that there's some great studies out of Europe, especially in Germany, that have shown that the number one diversity that helps to create effective teams is age diversity. Um, mm-hmm. Now, there's a lot of evidence that diversity is great for teams for all, on all levels, whether it's gender, race, race sexual orientation, uh, et cetera, disability. Uh, but age diversity is it tends to be the most effective, partly because the aging brain, the older brain, actually operates different than the younger brain. Um, right. There's a famous study, uh, I think it was BMW in, in Germany, where they showed, they, put, they created some teams that were just young people, and they treat, treat, created some teams that were just older people. The young people tended to work very quickly to, and came to conclusions quickly, but they made a lot of mistakes. The older people took a lot longer to actually come to conclusions, but they made fewer mistakes. If you interspersed the teams with age diversity, the, the age diversity, you ended up with um, the best of both worlds. So I think one of the things that older people bring to the table is a certain emotional moderation, emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm is a quality. IQ may not grow with uh, age, but I, EQ can. It doesn't, it, it doesn't necessarily have to. You have to sort of cultivate your emotional intelligence. But that, that moderation and also the lack of, lack of competition. If you're later in your career, you're not sort of striving like you were in your 20s or 30s. It doesn't mean that you're bored. It just means that you're not competitive with other people. Part of the reason I ended up having over 100 mentees at Airbnb was because people were not threatened by me. They wanted to learn from me, but they also didn't feel like I was in the way of their their career advancement. So I think that's another thing. There's no doubt that an older person may have built some know-how and know-who. The know-how is obvious, which means that you know a few things over the years. But the know-who is pretty important, too. As, you're, as you've been on the face of this planet long, longer, you actually have more mm-hmm. of a network of people that you can introduce someone to. And that's actually helpful as well. So at the end of the day, I think that it's not that younger or older people are better or worse. It's just younger people are often brilliant and quite genius in certain ways of thinking and often think outside the box more. Mm-hmm. And that's a beautiful quality, but then it's older people who can help them to realize those dreams. One last quality that a lot of people don't know is we do know that the aging brain has the following qualities. It's not as good at recall memory, and it's not as fast. But what what a lot of people don't know is the aging brain actually gets better at crystallized intelligence and the, the ability to connect the dots or think holistically or systemically. And why is that valuable? Well, that's valuable because it means that when the young people are exceptionally focused on something, having someone who's a little older to actually you know, rise to 30,000 feet in the air and be able to sort of see the connections and the holistic systemic uh, situation of what's happening is very valuable because it'll actually, uh, it offers some of that sort of holistic wisdom interesting i'm just thinking about the, what young people bring to the table and usually people talk about the tech applications and stuff but on the topic of say school strikes for example and now there's this big movement with young people who seem to have a deeper understanding of the climate crisis than perhaps a lot of uh, adults and maybe you know they have less in, the adults are kind of 
Uh, they're not necessarily older adults, but they have a position, they have an investment in society, a stake in society, younger people perhaps a bit more prepared to shake things up a little bit because there's there there's less uh, risk you know they don't they haven't got any stake in society yet so they that seems to be where um fresh blood and ideas and new perspectives can come from as well yes no no doubt i you know i think what's so uh, the thing i would just say that's also interesting is you know variety is the spice of life and having people interspersed into your life who are not the normal people you see from day to day is really helpful because they help you to see a perspective that you might not have seen otherwise. And the thing that's sad is that the average company out there doesn't think of age diversity. They think of gender and race and sexual orientation, but uh, of the companies in the world that have diversity and inclusion programs, um, only 8% of them have actually expanded beyond race, gender, and sexual orientation to include age as just as important of a diversity to strive for in their organization. Yeah, so they're missing a trick, big time. Yes. So, Chip, you have not just been talking about these ideas and having coffees and espressos and saying, wouldn't it be wonderful if you've, you've actually been sort of coming up with solutions? And you set up a school, and I want to kind of get into that in a moment. But there's this term that you, you re- dropped in earlier, which I think would be helpful if you sort of expand on for our listeners a little bit. And it's, it's this label that was applied to you perhaps i don't know reluctantly or or uh, you didn't see it coming but this this ta- this term modern elder what what does that mean it sounds like quite a weighty term there's a couple of aspects to it maybe you could just yeah. expand on that a little bit for us sure um the modern elder was i was i was called that by one of the co-founders of airbnb joe gebbia after mm. i'd been there for a few months and he said you're you're full of wisdom but you're also full of curiosity he says a modern elder is is as curious as they are wise and so with time, what I started to see is, so the traditional elder of the past was often regarded with reverence, mm-hmm. and that's not so much the case in, in most cultures in the world today. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's relevant, you know, reverence may no longer be the case, but relevance is. And relevance means that if you're going to be wise, you better be just as curious as you are wise, because the curiosity allows you to understand the context and to translate some of that wisdom in a way that people are going to understand it in that context. So curiosity opens up possibilities while wisdom distills down those possibilities into what's essential. And so if you can actually be both curious and wise in the same person, you're actually able to offer people something that, that, frankly, most people aren't able to offer. So being a modern elder to me meant I was at times as much an intern as I was a mentor, meaning I was as much asking questions and offering, you know, maybe some catalytic curiosity uh, as much as I was suggesting, you know, what some wisdom. It's interesting um, that you use the word curiosity because by sort of um, flagging that up as a, a quality that you're you know, focusing on and other people perhaps picking up on that as well. That probably creates an environment where people are celebrated for asking the obvious questions and things, you know, because you're saying, look, I'm aspiring towards curiosity, whereas otherwise people might think, oh, I don't want to reveal my lack of knowledge around this. No no doubt. I think that curiosity is sort of an interesting thing. It's something that we learned when we were young, and then at some point, we realized that we were, to be smart, you had to have the answers, not the questions. So what we end up with is an environment where people are scared to ask questions because it looks like they don't know. But, you know, Socrates, going back to Greek times, was the wisest person around because he asked all the young people lots of great questions. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and Jimi Hendrix came up with the, the quote, knowledge speaks and wisdom listens. So there's an element that listening is one ingredient of a, of a wise person because listening allows you to understand context. And I, I can tell you that um, I, while I love Google and Google gives me all the answers, I would much prefer a wise you know, elder at my side who offered me some weighty and poignant questions, which Google does not do. Yeah, it's interesting, actually, like um, answers we have, don't we? I mean, we like, you know, knowledge is kind of, there's a lot of it around, but it, it would be cool if there was some sort of search engine for questions, you know, like, what would be good questions to ask around this topic? That'd be quite, <laughs> be quite a useful tool. <clears throat> for sure. I mean, there are, there's a, there's a particular 
type of asking questions called appreciative inquiry. And this is one of the things we teach at our, at our Modern Elder Academy. And it's a, it's a way to ask questions that open up possibilities and maybe illuminate paths that you wouldn't have known otherwise. I wanted to ask about, you know, if you are, say, say I don't know, maybe once in their mid-50s and, you know, you, you've been in the workplace for a long time, you have a lot of experience. How do people turn that into something that's more obviously valuable? Because often they'll be viewed as, you know, out of touch or the world has moved beyond them. How do you get people to re- reframe their all the experiences they've had into something that's obviously more valuable? Well, there's a couple of thoughts here. Um, for, first of all, people have more wisdom inside themselves than they know. Often the wisdom they have is something that they've gotten used to and they're, they're comfortable with. But when they're in the context of people who don't understand it, they start to realize, wow, that's actually valuable. Uh, let me use an example to, on this. <clears throat> One of the things that's fascinating about working in Silicon Valley is what seems common sense to me based upon my decades and decades of history in, in the workplace to someone who's in their mid-20s or 30 may seem really quite wise. For example, how you run a meeting and how you op- how you cre- create a team that feels very motivated by the way that the, the, the team is being led is not something that we're necessarily taught. You know, you know maybe you went to business school and you learned that, but generally you learn it over the course of time. Mm. And you don't even realize based upon the course of time how good you've gotten at that. Mm. So when you're when you're surrounded by young people who haven't even learned that yet and have and are and cannot microwave their emotional intelligence, you're in a situation where you realize, wow, in the context of these people who don't know this, I realize that that's valuable. Mm. So so one of the ways you could start with is to sort of ask yourself and maybe even ask people who know you, well, what are the qualities about me or what are the my personality traits or what are what are the things I know that are particularly valuable. You think that I have, you know, I, I have a particular mastery that I've right. uh, that I have developed in that. It, you know, rather than just focus on what you don't know, mm-hmm. focus on focus on what you do know and what you can offer. We do an exercise which is coming up with five pieces of wisdom or advice you would offer to someone in, from a different generation who's younger than you, based upon your time in the workplace, and and make sure that these five pieces of advice are something that are specific to you. Don't make them cliches. Don't make make them that something that most people would say. Make them something that's quite unique to you. And people spend twenty four hours to think about that, and they come they end up coming to a session with the kind of wisdom that you know they didn't even realize they had inside of them. So we we we, we do some other things to help them get there too. So that's one piece. I think actually understanding you do have some wisdom inside mm-hmm. of you is mm-hmm. is the is the first step. The second step is to actually get curious. And and again, as we talked about earlier, I think being curious can sometimes feel like it makes you vulnerable. Um, But learning how to craft a question so that you don't look like an idiot, but you're actually posing something that might be a blind spot. One of the things that was so true for me in the early days at Airbnb is I was a longtime hotel executive um, and hotel leader, but I didn't know a thing about technology. And so some of my questions that didn't need to be asked in a full room were literally lingo questions. I had no idea what words they were right, using. Right. Yeah. And so I had to just write down those. And those I would ask people privately those things. But they would talk about things sometimes in meetings, and there was a big blind spot. They didn't realize, for example, uh, that we needed to improve our review system for Airbnb such that the guests and the hosts are reviewing each other. It has some blind spots in it. But because everybody had just operated with it since the start, nobody had seen the blind spots. So my questions, my willingness to be sort of the vulnerable beginner's mind in the room led to some revelations that allowed us to make some major changes in the review system to actually make it better. So so just because you're asking questions doesn't mean that you're the dumbest person in the room. It could actually mean you're the wisest. It's, it's interesting. Like I've found whenever I go to a, a new workplace, I, I've, I feel much more valuable in the first like three months because you're just asking all these questions, not because you're trying to be, you know, trying to make, you just don't know how stuff works. And you're like, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? And then after a while, you sort of assimilate all the assumptions of the place and you're, mm-hmm. you're not as useful. And it would, be, it would be good to be able to keep that. That, that attitude beyond the three-month point. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's also kind of weird that one's own wisdom becomes invisible. Like you're saying, you know, once you've learned to lesson yourself, you don't really recognize the value of it. I'm not, I'm not quite sure why that would be. 
I think, you know, we, we tend, whether it's, you know, our husband, wife, or car that we loved a year ago that we bought new and a year later it isn't quite as valuable to us. Generally speaking, we, we devalue the things we already have. Mm-hmm. And we, we tend to have a hedonic treadmill that leads us to wanting to go out and get the things we haven't gotten yet. And, and so whether it's our own wisdom that we've cultivated over time and don't even recognize and maybe don't even value, or whether it's the, the goal we had last week that we attained that no, no longer seems to matter to us, those are, that's how life works. And yeah. so learning how to take stock and I actually think wisdom is sometimes learning to know what you have that you don't, you're not even valuing, which suggests that there's almost a gratitude piece to wisdom as well. That's, that's interesting. That's, that's come up on quite a few episodes, actually. People finding a relationship between gratitude and wisdom. So I think, yeah, there's definitely some resonance there. Can we put some flesh and bones on how you're going about trying to take take these perspectives and this this uh, framing into the real world so you have set up a midlife wisdom school as you said i think the first uh on on the planet and what is it like i mean i, I wouldn't know where to start like trying <laughs> trying to build a school around this what is a midlife wisdom school and why why did this why is this the solution well, let, let's start by saying, uh, let me give you some some context, two, two points of context, one academic and one personal. So the academic point of context is this. So the, the, the word adolescence is only, it was created in 1904. People were adolescent in their teens, but we didn't have a word for it. Um, and we thought that, that once you hit puberty, you were an adult, which is why people went to go work in the mines and factories and got married and mm. had a ba- baby or two by the time mm. they were 18. And then when the word adolescence um, came into being uh, by a guy named Stanley Hall, uh, who was president of the American Psychological Association, there was now a premise that, okay, adolescence is this um, liminal state. It's the state, interstitial state between childhood and adulthood. And we need to offer schools and tools for people um, so they can be prepared to become an adult. Okay. That idea is only 115, 116 years old. There's a new word called middlescence. And middlescence is almost like adolescence for adults. And it's when you have hormonal and emotional changes in your life. And it's an interstitial state between adulthood and elderhood. And it happens often between 45 and 65 or around that age. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, so it's a period that we have done very little to give attention to. Um, you know, we've given all kinds of um, funding and social and and policy and, po- and political policy support to adolescence and to retirement, but almost nothing to mid midlife, which is like the other two a twentieth century uh, creation. Um, on a personal level, let me just say that the su- the suicide rate in the United States for people forty five to sixty four has gone up fifty percent in the last twenty years, and that's partly because there's a growing sense of irrelevancy. Um, people are feeling that we live in a world where you're going to live longer, but power is moving younger and the world is changing faster. And those three variables, living longer, power moving younger, world changing faster, has got people befuddled and anxious. And Mm. so what I came to realize having had five friends commit suicide in in midlife, all men, 42 to 52 years old, uh, over the course of two and a half years, I was like, wow, this is crazy. What is going on? What do we have in the way of schools and tools for people during this middle essence period? And we really had nothing. Now, it doesn't mean we don't have some offerings in the world. We have coaches and we have psychologists and therapists. Um, and there are personal growth retreat centers, and one that I'm quite familiar with is one called the Esalen Institute. Oh yeah, that's super. That's uh, I'm a big Feynman fan, so he was kind of okay, down there yeah. quite a bit, wasn't he? He was, yes. So in Big Sur, California, I've been on the board there for ten years, and okay. I'm a te- I've been a teacher there. But what what Esalen it did was in 1962 it opened and it became the first personal growth retreat center in the United States, and within 13 years, by the year 1975, there were a hundred around the U.S because it had been a, become a role model. So what's different between a midlife wisdom school and a personal growth retreat center is that Esalen doesn't have a curriculum. It just, ha- it just attracts wonderful teachers who come and teach their, their material there, but there's not a curriculum or a point of view, mm-hmm. and it's not specific to a particular age or, or life stage. You know, and so 
We are specific to a life stage called midlife. We have a very heady curriculum, 160-page workbook. Much of this relates to my book, Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder, but it's much more experiential uh, in terms of how we teach it. And so that's what we've done. And we've now had 750 alums from 22 countries come to the program. And uh, it's a social enterprise, so it's not it's not a for-profit. I pay myself nothing. Built the campus uh, it's on a beachfront campus in Mexico, a one hour north of Cabo San Lucas in the Baja Peninsula. And part of the reason we have a social enterprise, meaning that 60% of the people are on some form of scholarship, is because I believe that wisdom is not taught, it's shared. And so you create an environment where 18 to 20 people come together from very diverse backgrounds and you learn as much or more from your fellow students in the cohort, average age 54, as you do from the two teachers in front of the, in front of the group. It sounds, it sounds extraordinary. Like my background's education and, and whenever I think about how, how would one go about taking some of these ideas and putting them into the education system you know i smack up hard quite quickly against well yeah how are you going to check that it's working um and i know yours isn't a school in that academic sense but like you're probably interested yourself i guess to know what effects it's happening and would it be enough to rely on people's own perspectives about how much benefit they've got from it because obviously you can do that are you, are you, would you be satisfied with just saying if people feel they've got you know, benefit from it, that's fine? Or do you think it would be helpful to have a, an objective way of assessing it? Or is that even possible? You know, what, what are your thoughts about that? Well, this relates to my TED talk about um, it's, sometimes things are hard to measure. Yeah, right. Some things are hard to measure. The, the more valuable something is, sometimes it's harder to measure it. But the way we measure success um, is two or, three, two, two or three fashions. Number one is we do something called Net Promoter Score, which is um, an, it called NPS also. It's a customer satisfaction metric. It's the number one in the world one uh, in terms of its usage now. Um, and it helps us to understand how when people leave, do they feel like they were transformed in some way? Do they feel you know a, a major change? And um, our, our scores there are at the 99th percentile, so that's really good. Secondly, we're doing a longitudinal study with Stanford. Stanford has a program called Stanford Distinguished Careers Institute, and we're in the early stages of talking with them because they had reached out to us and said they have a program that's sort of like a midlife wisdom school for, uh, for their people. For, it's a year-long program, and they would like to see what evidence there is of the effect of the program. So we're in the process of developing that now. But the third way, the third thing we're looking at is we've now had, because we've been doing this for two years, we've had people who, who've now had two years of experience after coming to the program. And what we've done is gone out to them and, and surveyed them. So we don't just survey people after they've left a week later. We survey them one year and two years later and ask them what, what has transformed, what has changed in their life. Um, and the changes they've primarily seen, sometimes they're external changes. They realized that they were able to access some wisdom about where they wanted to live and what they wanted to do. But much of the change that they've felt is a more internal change. Everything from a shift in mindset relative to their idea of aging it's really interesting. There's a study from Becca Levy from Yale University that shows that when people move from a neutral or a negative perspective on aging to a positive one, and that, that mindset lasts, they add seven and a half years on average to their life. And, and those are good years as opposed to bad years. And that actually is a larger increase than um, you would get from people starting to work out or exercise later in life or learning to not smoke. And so in some ways, helping people shift their mindset about aging is one of the wisest things we can do because it actually helps them have a longer and happier life. So what is your ideal idealized version of the next five years in terms of this particular aspect of what you're doing? Do you hope to see midlife wisdom schools in every state, every continent? What's the sort of the hope for the, the next period? My hope is to, just as Esalen did for personal growth retreat centers, um, I would hope that our Modern Elder Academy would popularize a category called the Midlife Wisdom School that, you know, goes global. I don't see why you couldn't have one in Kyoto, Japan, or in the Sacred Valley of Peru, or 
you know, in Paris, for that matter. I do think the idea of helping people to reimagine and repurpose themselves into life is an idea whose time has come, because what we're seeing is that more and more people in midlife are having to to reimagine and remake their careers because the you know what they were doing uh, no longer is valued in the workplace. Mm-hmm. So one thing that I was wondering about is we talked a little bit about the relationship across generations, especially when you bring people together who may be a little bit younger, but uh, more, more technically savvy, but potentially inexperienced with intricacies of life and those who are a little bit older. What can people over 50, well, those who are often described now not so positively as baby boomers, I don't know what the status of the term now is. <laughs> it used to be positive at the beginning, but now apparently it's uh, negative. Uh, what can baby boomers, if you want to use this term, learn from millennials at work and vice versa? Well, there's no doubt that, I mean, I, I like to call this the EQ for DQ alliance. Cool. So e- EQ is emotional intelligence. And, and frankly, it's not all that it's not obvious necessarily if someone has emotional intelligence or not. You sort of have a sense of when someone doesn't have emotional intelligence. It's a bit more obvious, yeah. That's more obvious. Um, but whether emotional intelligence shows up in the form of, you know, how do you lead a team and, and get them motivated or how do you run a meeting or how do you un- understand your own self-awareness of, like, what's important right. to you? These are, these are qualities that I think older people can offer younger people. DQ is digital intelligence, and it's, a, it's probably, the, in many companies, the most important intelligence these days. It's, it's why companies hire 30, 30-year-old chief marketing officers who know everything about digital marketing. And yet... Some of these leaders and some of these young leaders can teach me and have taught me so much about the internet and about everything from how to create a great website to how can you tell whether an offer you've made is popular with your customers before they even take action. Um, you can even you can you can learn a lot about these things. So I think that alliance where it's almost like a, a you know a trade alliance where. Older people offer EQ, younger people offer them DQ, and both are better off for it is is, the, is a wave of the future. I just want to push back here a little bit. It seems too sure. simple to me. Uh, DQ versus EQ. Is there something, uh, other areas other than tech uh, that younger people can provide for older workers? Of course, yes. I mean, to understand the way the world is, go- where the world's going culturally is, you know, typically listening to a younger person. To understand mm-hmm. va- values and what the future of the world's going to look like from a values perspective, mm-hmm. listen to a younger person. Uh, you know, we listen to Greta in terms of you know now whether Greta is Greta's not going to be the um, the smartest person when it comes to climate change. You know, she doesn't have a PhD in environmental sciences, but she has learned how to be a spokesperson for a generation. And so there's something to be learned from Greta as well. So what's fascinating is if you look at who are the most famous futurists in the world. They're often 50 years old and older. But if you want to talk to someone about what the future really is going to look like, talk to someone who's younger than 20. (laughs) So this relates to my next question. So you have spoken about power in the workplace and how it's been shifting from older to younger generations. I'm interested in this cultural shift. What do you think can contribute to, to this change that we experience? What may be driving this shift? It, it has so much to do. You can you can almost chart it based upon the industry and how reliant they are on technology. The tech industry uh, is has been like this for ten or twenty years. So if you're a thirty five year old engineer in Silicon Valley, you start feeling old. But at the advertising industry, you know, it's it's not all about you know writing copy for a TV ad anymore. Now it's about digital advertising and Google and Facebook and and frankly, the younger you are, the more you understand it. Now this these are generalizations. Let's start with that. Um, right. But but the fact is that um, the power has been moving in a direction from to your younger people. And the fact that seven of the ten most uh, valuable companies in the world today are tech companies means that all companies are trying to look like tech companies. Uh, and that's a problem. I mean, that's a problem in the sense that making good decisions in business is not exclusively knowing what's the new tech app to use. Mm. There, are lots, there are lots of elements beyond just you know, technology that define mm-hmm. 
define a great business strategy or create a great team. So this leads me to another question here, and that is if the uh, major companies that are driving our commerce, our understanding of the world around us are all becoming more tacky in some ways, does the meaning of wisdom change? Uh, Is there like a timeless wisdom versus time-specific wisdom? And what is the meaning of wisdom in the 21st technological century? I think the meaning of wisdom, it's a great question. And I, and I have a, a quote in my book that's like <laughs> a very long sentence. I'm going to, what I'll do right now is I'll give you just a short perspective on this. Wisdom is about pattern recognition. And, and I think wisdom, what does that mean? I think it means that you're able to recognize patterns using your human instincts such that you can see, you can see the future and you can see the, the value in something. So that's why I think experience can be a form of wisdom because if you've had a series of experiences in your life and it's helped you to build a certain wisdom around a subject because you've seen your own patterns, that's one thing. If it's just pattern recognition alone, that would be like what a computer does. You know, it, you know, the old school computers were like zero one zero one. That's you know how how you coded a computer. So that's another form of pattern recognition, but that's not exactly wisdom because wisdom to me has an innately human quality to it as well, which speaks to understanding what you do know and what you don't know, um, and also speaks to being able to to see the patterns in emotions as well, in other humans. So at the end of the day, I, I, would, I would summarize it down to pattern recognition, but human-centered pattern recognition um, is what wisdom is about. And so being a little older can be helpful for wisdom, but there's a lot of evidence that shows that wisdom and age are not necessarily directly correlated. So being able to cultivate and harvest your wisdom helps. Last thought on this is that when I was 26 and I started my hotel company, about a year a year or two into it, I knew I was completely um, in trouble. I didn't. I realized I didn't know a lot, and I didn't. I, I I thought I knew it all, and I realized I didn't. And so every weekend I would go to my wisdom book. I created a wisdom book, and I'd come mm-hmm. come home from work. And I'd spend the weekend writing in my wisdom book saying, here are the three or five or seven things I learned at work this week. And I'm thinking that if I can actually add them to this wisdom book of what I learned this week, that over time, this wisdom book will help me to be wiser. And that's actually, that was really one of the things I did, you know, starting 33 years ago. Wow. Chip, thank you so much for joining us today. We learned so much from you about business, entrepreneurship, wisdom across generations, and mostly about the uh, Modern Elder Academy. Thank you for joining the show today. Yes, thank you for what you're doing for the world. Thanks, Chip. Thank you. And here's the summary of today's episode. In today's episode, we talked about the challenges of being a modern elder. We talked about the sandwich generation and the perception of the middle age and all the adults by the general public. We started off with the notion of wisdom in business and entrepreneurship. Next, we discussed the difficult pools of people who have to support both their grown-up children and their elderly parents, as well as the negative stereotypes associated with older age. We also discussed the domains in which modern elders can excel, especially the socio-emotional intelligence and how they can effectively contribute to teams, even if one may not necessarily have the same technical know-how as some younger co-workers. Finally, we discussed ideas about the ways to increase age diversity in business and private lives, rather than separation of neighborhoods and areas by age, as well as Chip Conley's new initiative, the Modern Elder Academy. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. If you like this episode, please consider sharing it with others and show them how to subscribe to our show. Till the next time.